How you doing today, Brian? I'm good, Nick. How about you? Doing pretty well. We had a, a very interesting guest today. And uh, it's interesting that we had a disaster expert almost a year after we had Dr. Sapersky. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty interesting topic. And we delved in everything today from disaster avoidance to machine learning and AI and talking about, you know, future things to worry about. It's true. So Lance Mortlock is our guest. He is a, a strategic advisor for Ernst & Young. But uh, more importantly, he is the recent author of a book called Disaster Proof Scenario Planning for a Post-Pandemic Future. So it's, uh, it's a book that it's incredibly well written. It's chock full of fantastic insights. They're insights that I would say they extend beyond just thinking in terms of disaster or disaster avoidance. There's really a lot of great leadership principles in there, particularly for how you can formulate a team, a strategy, and how you can use the blended strengths of a variety of different types of roles to contribute to the ideation that you need to put into something like disaster recovery, business continuity planning. Yeah, it was really great conversation. Like you said, we went talking about things from an academic almost perspective to then how to implement it, which I really like how Lance does it. He brings up his theories, his ideas, and then shows how it can actually be produced in, in a real world environment outside of academia. He, he leverages that if of all his years working in consulting too, he's, he's done it in real life. So I think with that, there, there's so much value in this episode today, but we're just going to let everyone get on with the episode. And stick around for some, some tidbits about some potential future scenarios towards the end of the episode. It's worth hanging in for. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Lead.exe. I'm Brian Comerford in Denver, Colorado. And I'm Nick Lozano in Washington, D.C. And today we're joined with special guest Lance Mortlock, who's a senior strategy partner with Ernst & Young and also a visiting professor at the University of Calgary Haskins School of Business and uh, has also just authored a book called Disaster Proof Scenario Planning for a Post-Pandemic Future. Lance, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today and welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. As I went through your bio, it became clear to me that you have a very rich <laughs> and, and varied past. So I'd like you to introduce yourself to our listeners a little bit uh, and pluck out what you think are some of the key points that you'd like to highlight. Sure. Yeah. So varied would describe it pretty well, probably tell from my accent, despite living up here in cold Canada for the last 12 years, my British accent hasn't rubbed off yet. Although my daughters who are both born here, they, they both have Canadian accents and yeah, you know, look, it's a great place to live and, and work. And I've been pretty fortunate in my career. I've spent 20 years really working as a strategy professional and in that role over, over those years. It has allowed me to work with all kinds of organizations all around the world and oversee a number of projects. And so I split my time between being a full-time partner with Ernst & Young, helping clients solve complex problems. And then I spend a bit of my time as a visiting professor, teaching advanced strategy and, and really working with 
and mentoring young students, which I really enjoy. And then as a writer and an author, which we'll hopefully talk about later, I, I love writing about management topics, leadership topics, challenges, dynamics that we're seeing and exploring those things. I'm naturally a, a, a very curious person. So spend my time between those three things. Spent more time actually living in Canada than anywhere else. But prior to coming to Canada, worked in, 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 a, in a number of sort of varied countries around the world. That's great. What, what kind of framed some of the context for uh, your entry into uh, management consulting? Life sometimes is about chance events and, and for me it's i have a, a it's a bit of an unusual background like my original my first degree my undergraduate degree was in was in science was in biological science biochemistry and i remember a mentor saying to me as i was doing my degree in in the uk what what do you want to do with your life do you want to go into science research and do a phd or do you want to do other things like it, it really caused me to pause and reflect i then went on and did an mba at another university full-time which really opened my mind to business and, and all those kind of things. And then there was a recruitment, a career fair kind of event at school. <clears throat> and at the time, a company called Anderson Consulting, which became Accenture, a global mega consulting firm, they were there. And I got chatting with, with a, a couple of folks there and they said, have you ever thought about consulting? And I said, no, not really. And he said, here are the advantages. You, you get to travel, you get to work with different clients on interesting problems and a lot of variety. And that appealed to me. So I ended up joining Anderson Consulting. And the first project that I worked on, I remember a partner at the time, his name was Tim. He, he kind of came into the room and I was in London in the UK. And he said, how do you fancy working in Oman? And I said, where, where is that? Literally, <laughs> well, you know, it's on the Arabian Peninsula. There's an oil and gas company there. Those are details. You'll have a great time. We've got a project we need you to fly out. And so I ended up living in Oman in Muscat for two years and then went from country to country working on different consulting projects. And here I am 20 years later, still doing it. Wow. That's <laughs> exciting. It's quite the background. I, I, I'm an Accenture alumni. I used to work there myself. Yeah. So, so I know the, that company pretty myself and the, oh, I, I like to say, I, I randomly wound up in technology too. I, I walked into a room. That's how I wound up in technology. So <laughs> I feel you on that one. Yeah. I think they're considering your biochemistry background as well. You, you probably appreciate a, a well-known quote from Louis Pasteur, depending on how it's translated something to the effect of chance favors the prepared observer. So it sounds like, uh, you were a prepared observer for the, the various paths that were put in front of you. So that's yeah, exciting. I've always approached life, Brian, as one where we've got one chance in this life to seize the opportunity and do interesting stuff. And that is what really motivates me to mm. do what I do, which is interesting experiences, <clears throat> interesting projects, helping clients solve interesting problems. Yeah, amen to that. And certainly being in uh, the world that Nick and I have also come up through in leadership and technology, there's always a new challenge around every corner. <laughs> More problems to be solved. And usually there's someone looking at you because they say, wow, this looks really difficult. How about you figure it out? <laughs> <laughs>
So let's talk a little bit about your book. It's a really interesting topic and it's disaster proof. And, and you're talking about coming out of the pandemic. Like what drove you to write this book? Yeah, great question. I is so the process of writing the book was it was a two year it was a two year journey and I wanted to focus on something that one was accessible to a broader audience. So I wrote it in a way that anyone could pick it up and really understand it. You don't need to be a deep strategy planning scenario planning expert and it also struck me and i've been thinking about this many years particularly given my background in in the energy sector both in oil and gas and mining and power and utilities we keep going through these boom and bust cycles we keep having these sort of periods of growth and prosperity times are good and drill baby drill to quote sarah palin i can't believe i just did that but then followed by bust periods where it's doom and gloom and, and companies are struggling to survive. And this keeps happening and we keep, we keep being surprised. And I've been thinking about that for years. I wrote a piece around business resilience and I, with my team, we developed a model around helping companies be more resilient in how they manage external uncertainty. And then I wrote another piece point of view around the DNA of the chief strategy, which is much more of a kind of future focused, how do strategy offices help big corporations be successful? And then there were some other pieces that I wrote. And, and so I suddenly dawned on me that I can bring some of these concepts together in a book. Plus with COVID, we were experiencing this massive event called VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Mm -hmm. We got to get better at managing this. And that really is the genesis of you know, how it started and how the book came to light. It, it is not, I wrote Disaster Proof not to be focused just on dealing with the contagion with COVID. It's about dealing with any uncertainty. It just happens that that's what we're dealing with right now. There's going to be something else. We don't know what it is yet. I have my guesses of what I think, you know, will be the next major disruption event, but understand that every 10 years or so, something is happening. Before COVID, it was the financial crisis. Before that, dot-com bubble. Before that, it was the... You know, the, the tequila crisis. I, I had never known until... Tequila I, crisis? Not <laughs> I love tequila. <laughs> but, but it keeps happening and we have to be prepared for this. And that, that really is what the book's about. And then the other piece that, that a lot of people talk about, and I've done a lot of research on is, is technology. Like we're investing, particularly with the remote working that's happening right now with COVID, we're investing billions of dollars in technology. And, and that is going to be a, a source of big change and disruption in the coming decades. So yeah, like I, my big premise is that we have to think about the future in, in different ways and challenge ourselves to be prepared. All joking aside, as I read through the book, it, part of what impressed me is it's so highly informative from a lot of different dimensions. It's clear that you've taken this from the approach of how do you equip leaders 
to really have a, a full-blown framework for planning through a, a variety of scenarios. Uh, so you've got case studies in the book. It's just rich with uh, references and context. As you're pouring through the list of these crises, they've preceded us. There are going to be more of them to follow, which I'd, I'd like to ask you about before we, we wrap the program today. But part of what I think is the most critical from uh, a leadership perspective to me is really that definition that you put together around scenario planning, what it means, all of the pieces and parts that roll up into it. There's a bit of it that's, of course, those of us who have worked in IT know about disaster recovery and business continuity plans. It's just part of what you're tasked with and for good reason. But you get into these levels of depth that, that I find really intriguing and particularly just starting with the definition of scenario planning, which I know you provide in the book, but it would be great to hear you just speak to it as well. Yeah, it really comes down to a formalized process for helping you think about the future and manage uncertainty. So let's unpack that a little bit. Like I mentioned earlier, VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. It's all around us, particularly at the moment with COVID. Although as we emerge from that VUCA, I think it's a perfect planet. It's a perfect period of time to say, okay, what next? as a company, as an organization, where do we go to from here? Which is why it was important for me to release the book in the US in May and in Canada in April. But it, it's helping organizations manage complexity, manage uncertainty, think about multiple futures. If you're trying to forecast the future, that's a dangerous game. I don't think anyone has a perfect crystal ball. And that's forecasting. For me, the key difference with scenario planning is you're saying, like, there's one future, there's another future. Let's think about those two futures, those riverbanks. Let's stretch the, stretch the riverbanks. And let's say, okay, if that plays out, what are we going to do as a company? Or if this plays out, what are we going to do as a company? And to me, that is what we've got to get and continue to force organizations to encourage organizations to think about, like, are we strategically flexible? And that's what scenario planning is about. It's about stretching the mental models to say, hey, there's A, there's B, there's C. What does it mean? Are we prepared? And what are the signals? That's the other definitional point, Brian, that's important. What are the signals that we should be monitoring? We, there's all kinds of case studies out there of companies that get disrupted because they miss the signals. They think about Blockbuster with Netflix, Kodak with digital uh, photography. Those are the classic examples. There are many other examples of companies that miss the signals that a scenario is playing out, such as digital media, digital videos, and then it's too late. And so understanding those signals as part of scenario planning is a really important factor. And when you talk about scenario planning, is it helpful to run through simulations every now and then of what you think you should do? as a team to see if what you have planned out, if it works or not, do you find stuff like that helpful at all? Oh, for sure. I mean, one of the examples that I talk about in the book is some work that the World Economic Forum did. And I have to point out, shameless plug here, the chairman and founder of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, has endorsed my book. And I think it's important I raise it because the World Economic Forum is a future-focused organization that is challenging countries, organizations, big organizations, small organizations to really think about different futures that play out, which aligns very well with disaster proof and 
the concepts that I talk about. But the World Economic Forum a few years ago ran a session with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the John Hopkins University. They called it Event 201. And it was all around, Nick, like thinking about different futures that would play out where a novel coronavirus would spread from bats to pigs to humans in Brazil. And they perfectly played it out, the scenario, to your question. And so they worked through and they simulated and they said, okay, if this happened, how would it play out? It would spread rapidly because the initial symptoms are very uh, severe. So people don't know they have it until they have it and they've given it to 10 other people. And private sector, they simulated private sector coming in with PPE equipment. I think about in Canada, we've had examples of oil and gas companies creating hand sanitizer, repurposing facilities to create hand sanitizer. I think about uh, Dyson creating ventilators. I know, I think Tesla at one point were also creating equipment. Like the private sector, they simulated the private sector coming in to help. So for me, when I dug more into Event 201 and many other examples, it struck me that these are powerful tools that we are not taking seriously. We, one, we need to listen to the scientists, I think, more often, but that's a separate point. And secondly, I think we need to use these management tools to really help us think about the future. Yeah, Alana, that's music to my ears. Buckminster Fuller is one of my all-time greatest heroes who, apart from really leading the charge with design thinking, was one of those proponents of the world game, which was the forerunner to a lot of what you just described, those scenarios being played out with the, the World Economic Forum. That design thinking factors into much of what I just heard you say, right? You're thinking about a lot of various possibilities and then thinking about what are those various paths to risk mitigation. And it may not always be one-to-one, -one, right? There may be a lot of different varieties in which that can happen, a matrix uh, kind of approach. So a lot of what you describe, as I understand it, in your definition of scenario planning is, is designed to step everyone through that and help inform, get everyone on the same page so that you can start to plan around steps that you might take for execution to mitigate disasters, thus making it disaster-proof. Am I tracking? Yeah, no, I'm tracking what you're saying, and I think it, it aligns well with what I'm, what, the way I characterize it, perhaps a different way of saying it is I think as humans, we have a habit of converging and deciding what to do too quickly. Convergent thinking. So the philosopher Joy Guilford, an American psychologist, she talked about this notion of divergent and convergent thinking. I think management teams have to challenge themselves not to converge on the solution too quickly and decide what to do, but actually take a step back and explore the possibilities. Divergent thinking. And what I call in the book, wallowing in the ambiguity. I work a lot in the energy sector and it's full, filled with very smart engineers and the solution orientated. And it's amazing what these guys can do. But sometimes you need to take a step back and explore the possibilities here and think about those different possibilities. And the other thing that I talk about in the book is the importance of cross-functional expertise. Are you bringing different thinkers to the table when solving problems and thinking about the future that provide diversity of perspective? 
that's very important in that sort of divergent space. So I think you have to weigh up, are we spending enough time on converging and diverging? Because there has to be a balance there, right? I like that you put the cross-functional teams. I, I know at least in my experience and may, maybe Brian's too working in technology a lot of times, like maybe CRM's a problem or something like that. And and it instantly be the IT team's problem to solve when it's really a business problem, really yeah. like business processes and different things. So yeah, I'm talking about one, one, one quick thing, Nick, I'll just say that. Sorry to interject, sure. but no, go ahead. In Disaster Proof, I dedicate a complete cha chapter, which, which we, if we have time, we can talk about the emergence of artificial intelligence is really the new frontier. I think as we continue to see AI, machine learning, natural language processing, and robotics process automation, like filtered through all aspects of our business lives and our personal lives. The translator role is so important in that process. Business-minded people that can act as the connector to the technology savvy people and interpret what it means, how we design it, how it adds value. I think that there's a very creative role and business-led role that I see in some organizations being very successful. You actually touched on the point I was going to, I was going to bring up because I know you had the AI, you're reading my mind and, and I saw your, your mention about using AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and it, as this stuff becomes more available to smaller organizations, right? Cause I know you can go pay to use Watson, you can pay to use Amazon has one, Microsoft has one. How important do you think it is for smaller organizations? Maybe they're not the huge Accenture's or, or KPMG's of the world. How important it is for them to start dipping their toes into it and researching that type of information to see if there's somewhere where they can start utilizing it. Yeah, I think there's always this sort of fear of the unknown when you're a small or medium-sized enterprise that this is ooh, big, scary stuff and we'll leave it to the Microsofts and the Googles and the Facebooks of the world to worry about that. But I, I think there's this massive untapped potential where there's existing technology that works, that is cheap, that is available, in some cases it's free, that you can leverage to enhance your capability. And so I would encourage all kinds of organizations to consider that. In fact, an example that I would use, I sit on the board of an organization that focuses on trying to bring the energy sector and more environmentally leaning organizations together to solve some of our, our climate related challenges here in Canada. It's a non-for-profit organization, very small headcount. And we're actually using natural language processing for that small organization to help us understand sentiment amongst Canadians as it relates to energy, climate change, and these big issues that we're faced with. So we teamed with the University of Alberta and we're doing it. We're, we're using NLP, we're using a machine learning tool, very accessible financially for us to do that. And it really is driving all kinds of interesting insights around the way Canadians think about energy and climate change that helps inform our decision-making strategically. And that's a non-for-profit with less than 10, 10 employees. And then I've seen it in mega companies of tens of thousands of employees used and everything in between. So long way of saying, Nick, I, I think it's very accessible and we have to get over the fear factor. And I think there's a certain discipline to it as well. That's understanding that there's uh, a value to the outcome of actually going down that path and spending the time to 
to roll up your sleeves and perhaps do some work that takes you out of your comfort zone so that you can really start learning some of the new applications for it. So we've already diverged off into this path where we're talking about part of the subtitle of your book, AI, the new frontier, which I know that you said you, you hope that we have time to get to it. So since we're already going down that path, I'd like to ask you about something that you mentioned earlier, that you've got some ideas about some of the impending disasters that we need to have some preparedness for, some scenarios that perhaps you've already contemplated that are strong possibilities. Using AI, what would be some of the approaches that then would help us to step through some of the scenario planning for some of those things that, that are possibilities? Yeah. Yeah. There's the way the particular part AI, and I scratched the surface in the book and the more I read about it, the more I want to read about it. It's a this scary technology, but it's also quite exciting. It's a double-edged sword. As you become more informed, your eyes, your eyes open up. And there's some great books out there. Life 3.0, Superintelligence, Human's Last Invention, really accessible reading in terms of your listeners and wanting to understand more about AI. To me, it's a data challenge where as an organization or a government, what you're trying to do is make sense of the data that exists in the world. As IBM said once, they talk about, we created more data in the last two years than the rest of humanity combined. What do we do with all this data? I work with all kinds of organizations where one of their biggest challenges is they're capturing data through IOT and other sensor technology, but they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to drive insights and decision-making and all those things from this data. And so it, it struck me as I was researching the book that there is this tremendous opportunity, particularly with natural language processing, to use the data and information in different ways to inform strategic thinking. Let's take COVID, for example. Like there is existing technology that was being used by the Canadian government to monitor diseases as they were emerging around the world. They successfully identified MERS, SARS, H1N1 before they became major issues. So it's this, this I talked about earlier, the signal monitoring. You know, this natural language processing tool that they were using was able to scrub data from public sources on the internet from 10,000 different sources. Humans can't do that. And so it, it's about how do you use, in my mind, NLP type tools to scrub information in a way to draw out the risks, the threats, the uncertainties. In fact, IBM's taken it a step forward. They have a pilot project underway. I still believe it's in the pilot phase where their tool will actually develop the scenarios for you as well. So it not only scrubs the data and says, here's what's important. You might want to focus on this competitor that's encroaching on your space, but actually here are four possibilities of the way this could play out. And that's really interesting where I, as a strategist, I find it a little bit fearful that am I going to be out of a job in 10 minutes? But I think the capability of this technology to kind of process the information. And so I talk about in the book, this notion of collective intelligence, which is nothing new, but it's, we have to, particularly with strategic processes like scenarios, strategic planning, figure out 
what's the right blend between using NLP and AI tech technology to support certain steps of the process and figure out where the humans play. And then together, the collective intelligence takes the company much further forward. And look, there's examples of this being used in highly strategic contexts all the time. You think about how banking, investment banking transactions are made using machine learning. You think about in the US, hurricane, you know, hurricane signals and using machine learning to look at different weather data points to say, this hurricane is going to be a problem, particularly with climate change, where we're seeing more of it. We need to be prepared. That scenario is going to be a problem for us and weather people are great and they play a role, but, but can we use NLP to augment that in a collective intelligent way is what I really try to push in the book. So it's possible that people could just be the emissaries of what the algorithms are telling us. So people do still get to have a role in it. That's good news. <laughs> I hope so. I might be asking you for a job. It's interesting because I've got a lot of experience working with insurance technology. And so the risk management applications of what you're talking about, there's, we're already seeing the emergence of a lot of it, particularly with the, the companies that are the major insurers that uh, a lot of what we characterize as machine learning and this predictive modeling. Those are things that are being factored in today, most commonly for identifying things like fraud in claim submissions, really going several steps further out based on what you're talking about, really being able to start doing some scenario playing around high catastrophic risk, really high impact risks and being able to apply risk management so that the humans can come in and have that risk advisory role from a consultative aspect. That's right. I, I, I think you characterized it really well that the example that you used in insurance, I'd classify that as operational application. And what I try to <clears throat> advocate or push for that we have to start thinking about in, in disaster proof is the strategic application. We're going to move from operational application to strategic application, and we need to get ready for that. It's a bit like automation. And you, know, you think about automation in blue collar workers, particularly in like automotive manufacturing. We went through this massive wave of that. We're now seeing in white collar work workers, a wave of automation there. And I think within the white collar workers. It's not only operational processes, but it's going to be strategic processes as well. We need to figure that out. We need to figure out where do we add value in that system, in that relationship, and where do you know where do the machines, artificial intelligence, where do they, where does that add value together? And remember as well that <clears throat> complexity is not going away. It's getting. It seems like it's getting worse. We're dealing with more VUCA, and so. The traditional methods of dealing with that, I think, are outdated. It's interesting to hear you say that, as is common for most companies, every periodically, once a quarter, or a couple times a year, whatever it is, you have to go through a security training. That's just become very commonplace. And this time going through my own security training, part of what I thought was interesting was one of the risk factors that was presented the first time that I've ever seen it is disinformation. And when you talk about FUCA and the amplification of it, we've now seen this new sort of emergent trend with disinformation, particularly through social media channels, 
that has become so widespread in a very short period of time and based on your own need for interpreting the signals, I'm curious is how does that factor into your disaster scenario planning? Really those other factors that are more cultural responses to something like COVID, right? And there's been this underlying current of things that I know I certainly didn't predict about this time last year when everyone was saying, hey, we're in it together. And that fell apart pretty quickly. Yeah. So around signals, I think there are social, but economic, like you've got to take a balanced approach that your signal monitoring can't be purely financial, purely economic or political, but I think you've got to have a good balance of looking at the social signals that are in play as well. And I, I think the other thing is like that there has to be a prioritization of those signals. There's a lot of different things that you could monitor. I think the technology, as we talked about, helps you monitor more, but you, there has to be a prioritization because at some point a human has to look at these signals and make a decision, particularly with strategic processes, because the humans are still in the loop and humans only have a certain amount of capacity of things that they can look at. So I think thinking through that prioritization and ensuring that they're balanced is important, if that makes sense. Thank you. And Thank you, you like you're getting ready to. <laughs> <laughs> yes. A lot of great points when we're talking a lot about uh, strategy and using AI. And is, is strategy and like innovation, are these departments that organizations should just have where it's somebody's full-time job? I, I notice as time has been going on, I've seen a lot more like chief innovation officer, chief strategy officer. Is that somewhere we're going towards and those individuals utilizing AI more to help them analyze some of the data? Yeah, it's that there's one of the things that, that I talk about quite a bit is the sort of confluence of three aspects. So I would add to what you said, there's the chief strategy officer, which in my mind, they're trying to anticipate, navigate and translate what's going on in the world. There's the chief digital officer who is trying to connect, integrate and transform the organization. The third aspect is there's the chief risk officer, which is trying to measure, monitor and control risk. And those three things need to, I think, come together. I think innovation to your point is part of, can be part of that sort of digital journey. Look, there's different lenses that you can apply to this, but I think now more than ever, integrating these different capabilities is so important. And I see lots of companies like, well, I'll have a chief strategy officer, but that person is not integrating and connecting and working closely with a chief risk officer. And they need to be, or the chief strategy officer working with the chief digital officer, like technology is everything now. And those capabilities have to come together, I think, in much more meaningful ways in, in the future. And, and these are, you're right, Nick, like these are new capabilities that companies need to build big and small. And I think if you're a small company, there's an opportunity to have people multi-hat because you don't have the resources and capabilities that perhaps a bigger company have where they can have a dedicated business to do this. In a small company, the CEO might be the innovation officer as well and do both. And that's fine. Yeah. We heard you say earlier, I'm talking about cross-functional roles. I think back to, once again, my 
Bucky Fuller's famous term of synergy. It's really bringing together a lot of those blended strengths so that you do have the possibility of combining all of that ideation as part of the leverage within your strategy. And it sounds as well that now with the emergence of AI, that's going to continue to be part of that blended strength. Yeah, I think it has to be. And yeah, there's these things are concentric circles where I think that there are areas of overlap where strong collaboration and integration needs to happen between different capabilities in an organization. And I think there are areas where, hey, you know, if we need to slam in this new technology as quickly and as efficiently as possible, just get on with it and do it. And it doesn't require a huge amount of collaboration to be successful. And you've got to judge those different areas along, along the way. And one of the things that I do try and address in the book is some of these different roles and the roles that they play in the practical application of those roles. I didn't have the time to address everything, but I certainly tried to capture some of those key, key roles and, and why they're important, the facilitation that they play in the process. Yeah. As previously mentioned, I think the book is just a great study for anyone in a leadership role, even if uh, it's not necessarily your specific role's charge to be key to things like disaster recovery planning, but to really be able to go through your book and have an understanding from the various case studies, the different roles that you define, uh, even to the, uh, the benefits, right? You've got a listing of, I think the eight benefits uh, of really undergoing this type of an organizational endeavor. Certainly some of them that we've talked about along the way here in terms of being able to do things like formulate your strategy and, and, but then have the capabilities of coming back around and validating that as well. We've touched on different aspects of this, I think, and what I try and lay out is there are a series of input benefits like risk management. You talked about that, Brian, and we talked about managing uncertainty, but then process benefits where, you know, organizational learning. I think Cheryl is a great example of a company that uses scenarios to really learn about the environment and test things and drive action as part of the learning process. It helps with optional analysis to say, we've got different strategic options that we can play out. What does that look like? It helps validate and stress test your strategy. In fact, all the uncertainty actually going back to that, Rolls-Royce is a great example, good British company, uh, you know, I, I can't help myself at times, but the, they use scenarios to really formalize uncertainty management. And so we need to get better at, at managing uncertainty. It helps with complex decision-making when you're making a major capital investment that might be billions of dollars or even a technology investment, like an S4 implementation and ERP. These are big decisions. So you could use scenarios to play, okay. If this environment plays out, would we still make that technology investment? Would we go, you know, full on into e-commerce or we going to continue our traditional retail approach as an example? And then the other piece is innovation. You touched on innovation. I think there are great examples of where future thinking and scenarios can help organizations innovate. But one of the examples I talk about in the book is the port of Vancouver. So up here in Canada, they're one of our large, they, they are our largest port on, on the West coast. And they use scenario planning to help envisage a future 
that's much more sustainable energy, renewable and focus. And it actually resulted in them forming a partnership with BC Hydro, one of the major utilities. And, but the way I look at it is that might not have happened had they not thought about these things in different ways. So it really helped, helped them innovate. So I think that there are all kinds of benefits. The specific benefit for your company will depend on what you want to get out of it. That's terrific. I know we're getting close on time here, but I, I do want to give you a chance to speak a little bit to some of those potential disasters that you believe may be impending. I heard you speak about it a little bit uh, at the beginning of the program. Can you give us a sampling of what we might be uh, needing to be monitoring signals for? Yeah, so there's, there's probably, there's a few things that I think about in, in my spare time. One is China. And actually, if you take a step back and you look at what's happening with China right now, and it's not necessarily a disaster, by the way, because I think that there's upside and downside to thinking about different futures. But if you think about China, 2028, economically, they will be the most powerful company, uh, country, company country in the world. So that's only eight years away. And most economists would agree that they are on that track to, to become very economically powerful. They already, I think, have the biggest Navy. They are militarily very strong and they're investing heavily in that space. And so one of the things that I wonder about is if, and when that happens as a possible scenario, how will that change? you know, what we know as world order. I think the Americans have done a tremendous job in the last 70 years, really policing the world, really creating a system and a currency, the US dollar, that has served us well in terms of the West over the last 70 years. There's a great book actually called Disunited Nations, and it talks about the shifting of of that guard, that world order to a different world order. That doesn't mean that that world order is not going to be better. It's just going to be different. Uh, but that difference creates VUCA. And I think we have to get our heads around, well, what could that mean in terms of the way businesses operate, the, the way trade is done, the way corporation works, it's change. And I think that's an a very real possible scenario that will change things. So that's one. The second one we've talked about a lot, which is artificial intelligence. And I think in the next 10 years, we're going to continue to see big advancements there. A possible scenario that could play out that some would say is, is possible. Others would say it's still a long ways off is real general intelligence. And so that's a machine that can, you know, essentially operate the same way, um, that humans do from a mental capacity perspective. So it's not one dimensional algorithms, it's general intelligence. It's able to solve this particular problem, but also could solve a completely different problem. It can play chess and be humans, but it also can process IOT sensor data and drive insights and support decision-making and everything in between general intelligence. And then quickly after that, super intelligence. And some are saying that once you get to general intelligence, learning, deep learning, machine learning, it will self-learn and then get to super intelligence very, very quickly, maybe a couple of years after that. 
I think that the disruptive impact of that, we don't fully understand as a possible scenario right now. But what I think about is, okay, what will happen <clears throat> to the middle class? I think you potentially have a uh, piece of society that is able to continue some of the manual jobs cheaper than machines. And then another part of society that is on the very, very kind of complex thinking, but what happens in between? What will the 30% of male population in the US that rely on jobs that are to do with driving actually do when trucks become fully autonomous? taxis become fully autonomous, deliveries become fully autonomous. We have this sort of potential gutting of the middle class. And I think we have to play that out. And there, there are solutions to that. But I think we've got to think about different tax structures, incentives to companies to actually tax robots, incentivize companies to hire humans instead of robots. So there are ways that we can get through this. But it's an uncertainty and it's a scenario that we need to play out. So that's the second one that I think about a lot. And then the third one is around energy transition as an energy guy and spending a, a big part of my career focused on energy. I think that you will read Bill Gates' book on, on the climate crisis and other books on, on the challenge that we have in terms of climate change. It's a big uncertainty that's playing out real time. And I think it has huge implications in terms of Companies focus on ESG, companies focus on kind of climate change and net zero, what governments do around policy and regulation. And we're only seeing the beginning of this tsunami of activity that's going to happen in the next decade. And companies need to be prepared for that. So we covered a lot in a short period of time there, but China, AI, and energy transition would be my top three. I know we're almost out of time here. We're a little bit over. Do you have a book or piece of media that's had a big influence on you that you'd like to share with everybody? There's two that have had a big impact on me over the years as a strategic advisor. One would be Discipline of Market Leaders by Michael Tracy. And what I really like about what, what Michael did was, and he actually endorsed my book as well. He's a New York Times bestseller, is... He, he did a nice job of thinking about companies can be great, really great at one thing, but you can't be great at all things. And he talks about highly innovative companies, operationally excellent companies, and very customer intimate companies. So I'd love that book. I've used those concepts over my career many times. And then the other book, also a Michael, but Michael Watkins wrote the book, The First 90 Days. And it's a really practical guide to when you go into a new leadership, what you do in the first 90 days really sets you up for success or failure beyond that in a new company and a new leadership role. So those would be my two. I always love uh, when we get references to things that I'm not familiar with. <laughs> I know. It's awesome. And since we're wrapping up here, Lance, where can people find you or your book or like where, where can they reach out to you? Yeah, I'm an avid user of LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn. So that's one one area or go onto my website, <clears throat> which is www.lancemortlock.com. We'll be sure to link all that stuff in the show notes for people who are listening so they can easily find you. Perfect. Lance Mortlock, thank you so much for the time that you spent with us today. It's been fascinating uh, just hearing your insight. I certainly uh, appreciate the time that I've gotten to spend with your book, Disaster Proof, Scenario Planning for a Post-Pandemic Future. 
Thank you very much for uh, for sharing uh, your insights with our audience today. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.